Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. In your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode, just one episode this week, I do indeed only have about two hours to offer. Last week, there were so many questions. I guess we're just trying to kill time over Thanksgiving that we needed to break it out into two episodes. And as I seemingly do at the beginning of most of these episodes, I start saying we when I mean me. I have no idea why. Thanks for all the just crazy reaction and listening and support and everything that you all do here on the little MP podcast. This week in IndyCar listener Q&A thing, which we've broken off into its own episodes for, I don't know, what, two months now, maybe. It is a delight. It is a genuine delight. I'm starting recording here at about 1.43, something p.m. On a Wednesday afternoon, the rain has stopped falling here in Northern California. Looking out the windows, though, very gray, very overcast. Rain has been intermittent, and I actually love these days. Now, granted, if you live somewhere where it's gray all the time, you might think I'm an idiot. Or you might have just thought I was an idiot beforehand. Really nothing to do with weather. We tend to get a lot of sun here. It's not always super warm. That's more a Southern California thing than a Northern California thing. But uh, yeah, the, the sun's our friend. Sky's our friend. And it takes a while for us to get into this period where it's not sunny and or just bright all the time. And I really like this. It connects with my brain as a time to slow down and shut down a little bit. So here we are. I'm a happy guy. So last week, I think I, it was a, a bottle of Dragon's Milk beer that I consumed during the show. I started recording in the late afternoon, early evening. It's mid-afternoon now. I'm not really wanting to get into, quote, day drinking while doing the podcast here. That might be a stretch at the moment. But yeah, uh, with that beer and then another one I had while recording the weekend sports cars, I believe those two beers doubled my alcohol consumption for the year so who knows maybe i need to get a couple of other bottles send me some ideas you might have heard me mention last week that when it comes to beer i have one prerequisite if i can see through it if i hold it up to the light and can see through it i do not want it there's no exceptions to this i have tried ipas and lagers and lots over the years they do nothing for me. I uh, need something a little crunchy, uh, something that's going to give me heartburn after a single bottle. That is a beer I like. So not just dark for the sake of being dark, but just something with flavor. Belgian beers, big fan of those. So send me some ideas. Maybe Half Drunk Pruitt Weekend IndyCar Listener Q&A Show. Maybe that becomes a thing. Although I don't th- it's probably been... Now, this again, I don't know if it means anything. At least a decade, maybe, since I've been drunk. I don't know. It's just, it used to be my thing. It's not, but I'm willing to try anything here for your amusement. Got lots of questions, as usual. Going to jump into them in just a moment. As you know, always pay homage, pay thank you, pay everything. As my cat Rocky is currently trying to get my attention on the left side of the desk because. He's due to be fed in an hour and a half, and he starts this daily feed me thing about two and a half, three hours early. Thanks, Rock. Really appreciate it, buddy. Um, We want to say thank you to the Justice Brothers 
We're coming up in the end of their first year as a primary partner here of everything we do. Also, torontomotorsports.com. They're just such amazing friends and do so many fun things, not just here at the show, but hopefully that you've come to enjoy it, torontomotorsports.com with T-shirts, stickers, hats, memorabilia, some laughs, and some showing some love for the teams and drivers, and you, you name it, that you appreciate. They facilitate that. Bell Racing Helmets USA are fine friends in Speedway, Indiana. Also, what this is coming up at the end of their second year of doing good stuff with us. And also, finally, want to mention Cooper Tires. They were our first primary partner, started in 2018. We're now obviously coming up the end of their second full season. And just got word yesterday that we're doing year number three. So if uh, if you don't mind, if you feel compelled, I pretty much never ask for such things, and there's no expectation. But if you feel it in your heart on your preferred social media platform, just sending a little thank you to at Team Cooper Tires would be uh, not a bad thing because without them, without the Justice Brothers, who also deserve... I'm slurring my words, and I haven't consumed alcohol yet, who deserve big thumbs up for making this podcast possible. Also, Toronto Motorsports and Bell, you know, they, without them, this doesn't happen. It just doesn't. Uh, the costs to do this uh, far outweigh my ability to pay for it out of hashtag me personally, my own pocket. So really, really stoked to say that Cooper Tires will be back for your number three with a good old podcast, all that we do. And I'm hoping to tell you more good things on that front with our existing partners. And who knows, might even have uh, some new names added to the mix. So that's that little piece, not even business, just telling you the truth. And then we do one other thing. This is thanks to torontomotorsports.com each week. We look back at all the questions you sent in on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page for this show and see whose question got the most likes. And then because we like giving you things, we realize you wouldn't be our friends otherwise if we didn't buy that that support. We give you something, a free T-shirt, a mug, I don't know, stickers, maybe all of them. It's really up to Derek Koska, who runs torontomotorsports.com. And so last week with Willie T. Ribs as our guest, Thomas Gross's question of what else is going on at Dale Coin Racing? Why does a fully funded car suddenly need funding? Did they lose Sealmaster, uh, etc.? And talking about canceling the contract of a driver seems to take this to another level. That got the most likes. So Thomas, send me a DM with your email address and I'll get you linked with torontomotorsports.com. And then they will ask you what your shirt size is. If there is a particular shirt among the many that either they make on my behalf, or I've come up with like the new Robin Miller 2020 t-shirt, Joe Tonto quarter retrieval service, whatever. We just send you some stuff and say, thanks. And there's no expectation beyond that. Uh, what else? Oh, hey, I saw that uh, next year in the month of May, uh, if you're a fan of ario speedwagon and sticks they're going to be performing at the 500 <sighs> i know that folks pooping on the annual decisions for the bands is kind of a thing and it gets a little tiresome 
So I don't want to do that too much. I just wanted to mention when I saw that, my first thought was I was born December 7th, 1970. I first really started getting into music probably almost around that same time towards the very end of 1975, 76, probably 76. And Ario Speedwagon was still a thing. Sticks, I believe, was still a thing, but I can at least say that for Ario Speedwagon, which I believe was positioned as the headliner, when I was getting into music and kind of forming my own styles, which is kind of built off what my brothers were listening to, admittedly, I just recall feeling then in the late 70s when I was building my musical taste that Ario Speedwagon was kind of old and running out of gas. So. Yeah, so maybe the little comment here isn't so much to be critical of the Speedway or the bands themselves. The first thing that came to mind was, wow, I remember that this lineup we're going to see kind of being old back when I was young. And second, what a weird thing to have this fragmented musical entertainment thing at the Speedway, which has developed which is we're going to have DJs, EDM, bands that I assume 90% of the fans who turn up for the 500 have never heard of. So that's great. So we appeal to a truly young, cutting-edge demo there who might just be turning out to see those bands. Who knows? And then separately, we have the Dinosaurs of Rock. (laughs) And you go... Okay, uh, I had totally get trying to appeal to two different demos. I also wonder, though, with IndyCar continually wanting to get younger, not just appeal to an older crowd, if the splitting folks off thing, I don't know. I wonder if that's, that's the strategy. So come out to the Speedway. We're going to give you more than just racing. We're going to try and entertain you with some bands that you like. The vast majority, just age-wise, demo-wise, we know would fall towards the the classic rock era, even if the two bands I've mentioned are, you know, kind of second, third, fourth tier on that depth chart. And then the young ones you're hoping to court, you kind of segment off in their own thing where they might not actually be there for the racing, but just to see the bands. I don't know. Part of me thinks if you're trying to, build a newer, younger, just more inclusive and growing IndyCar base, maybe you don't split people up so much. Maybe you look for acts that are a little bit cross-generational or do something crazy of putting some of these, mixing some of these bands up so older fans can see some newer things, hopefully, and younger fans can see some older things and crazy concept Older and newer fans who, at least through this musical exploration, are separated, might actually stand next to each other and talk and find common ground. I don't know. Nuts, right? Maybe I have been drinking. I apologize. All right. We're going to get going here. I've got a call coming in from our guest for our guest episode, Graham Rahal, in about 35 minutes. So I'm going to see how far I can get on your questions. Hit the old pause button speak with Graham 
and then come back and knock out the rest. We're going to go first. Joshua Ponce. Thanks, Josh. You always send in fun stuff. Says, okay, Marshall, this year you're hosting the IndyCar Christmas party for all the drivers. Oh, Lord. Uh, this party is fully paid by Roger Penske. I mean, come on. He bought IndyCar on the Speedway. The food is provided, obviously, by spam. And you guessed it. It's only spam on the menu. The holiday game that can only be played is White Elephant. That, for those of you who don't work in an office, is where you kind of buy gifts for your coworkers. Sometimes it can be a randomized thing. He says, how do you see this party going down? Uh, and I think we have another question here somewhere that's along similar lines. Oh, you know what it might just be? And this would be a whack. It would just be drivers giving each other helmets, right? It's already kind of the that or watches. I mean, these are really the two things that the drivers tend to marvel over between one another, ask one another for. So I think the default would just be, oh, look, everyone has a square box that's, you know, kind of one foot tall, one foot wide. And just, yeah, look, it looks like everybody went shopping at the same place. And you go, well, no, actually, you're just giving each other helmets. Oh, thanks. Or maybe a watch thrown in. Maybe. I doubt the watch, though, because first of all, the drivers get their helmets for free, so there's no real cost. There's cost in painting often, but, you know, a watch. How's this? There's nobody wearing a Timex in IndyCar, right? These are all some form of, you know, insured for the value of a small house. You don't see them, but there are snipers in the grandstands. You know, each driver's paying for this, you know, black ops type sniper make sure nobody steals their watch anyways i think it's going to be the helmets joshua which would be kind of lame also mentioned this one said this a long time ago on the podcast but i had a funny a funny conversation with one driver not going to mention who we're not trying to make enemies here one driver say you know i was really stoked because i'd been wanting to trade helmets with a particular indycar driver and so finally we did and said, when I got it, I was really disappointed. And I said, why is that? I said, well, you know, I guess it's maybe goes unsaid a little bit, but if we're trading helmets, you know, we're the value here is this is your helmet. You're giving it to someone and you've worn it. It holds meaning. It holds value. You've used this in competition, right? You've risked your life. And so here are these things we take pride in that protect us. Fans have seen, again, there's real sentimental value, and we're trading this thing. Found out that having given this driver in question one of his race-used helmets, what he got back was a perfectly clean helmet. And it didn't look like it had been cleaned. It was clear, and as this driver learned later, the driver in question he did the swap with has a practice of getting extra helmets painted. I'm guessing on the cheap just for the sake of trading. I truly don't want to invest any extra money in this. There's no radio communication. There's no anything plugged in. There's all the extra money that gets spent on fitting the helmet and putting all the various little pieces Hans device anchors in the this right all the little touches were missing 
And that's when uh, the driver was telling me the story. It's like, man, that really bummed me out because I always wanted that guy's helmet. And when I got it, it was just clear that this was more than anything kind of just a routine on how to cheap out as much as he could and meet the minimum expectations for that trade. But yeah, this is just something that, you know, had been quote mass produced sitting on a shelf. Oh, okay. Well, so-and-so sending me their real helmet. I'm going to send them this one and just hope they don't recognize. So it'd probably just be helmets, Josh. And, and I don't know if they'd be real helmets or what, but you know, boys giving each other their helmets, uh, I'm just going to leave that sentence alone. Lori Carter. Hey, Lordy, Lori, Lordy, Lori. Today, you're Lordy Carter. Carter. I'm not even going to edit this out. It's another thing, too. If you're a first time listener to my listener Q&A show, this isn't the clean and polished one. I'd be lying if I said the driver Q and uh, driver interviews were polished. But this is uh, as I'm just coming to embrace. This is my unpolished turd of a show. I hope you enjoy it. If you're a perfectionist. I'm driving you mad. Actually, you're not listening anymore. You, you hit stop a few moments ago. Lori Carter is the name you were given. I've turned it into Lordy Carter, which is maybe, you know, a good one to use if you're trying to not be recognized, maybe. She says, hey, Marshall, if you had to pick between going to Mid-Ohio or Gateway, which would you choose? She says, I love both. But since they are on back-to-back weekends next year, I'll probably only be able to go to one. She also says, thanks, you're the best. Well, that's really sweet of you to say. And most don't say that, so it makes it even nicer. Hmm. Honestly, Lori, I'd say it depends on what experience you are lacking. If you've been to Mid-Ohio and Gateway, that might be hard. If you've been to one and not the other, I'd just say go to the other because this is, these are two gems, true, true gems. Mid-Ohio, there's a, it's a bit of a, a cultural phenomenon, just like Road America, just like Long Beach, Indy 500, a few others. This is one of those real meaningful weekends that goes back a super long time. And it has that institutional feel when you go to mid-Ohio for the IndyCar race, even a little bit for IMSA, but I'd say far more for IndyCar. If you walk around, if you're just staying in a hotel but coming out to the track each day, you get a quick understanding. You look at all the motorhomes, all the people that are there, all the banners. Everyone's wearing a T-shirt supporting their favorite driver or team or a hat. Uh, It's just you can tell that this event is a a large part of people's year and they love it and it feels like it. When you step in, you feel like, oh, wow. I don't know, again, off the top of my head, exactly what number it is, but they should almost put the the number event that it is. Mid-Ohio IndyCar 36 or whatever it is because it feels like you're showing up to a time-honored event and the folks there, both young and old, it has a certain appeal to it. So for me, there's that streaky kind of thing, right? If you've gone to mid Ohio many times, you don't want to miss it. Not just to keep the streak alive, but because you know, you are going to eat great food, meet passionate fans, 
have some fun because it's a hearty area of the country and the people there just good peoples, as my father used to say. It's hard to leave mid-Ohio without a big smile. The racing tends to be very interesting. Gateway, new to the modern era IndyCar series, right? Was around back in the day, was on the cart schedule and the IRL schedule. But this is very quickly becoming mid-Ohio-like or Road America-like, where, boy, if you aren't going, you're missing out on something. I'd say the difference between the two, maybe to consider, Lori, if you are having to pick one, and if you aren't having to, if you could go, if you had tickets to both, uh, shoot me a note, because I know people. Tickets, not a problem. I uh, will probably help you there if you need, but if it's just a, it's way too much cost and or can't get that much time off work or whatever it might be, totally understand. The gateway side, racing tends to be pretty amazing. The track and the tires, there's a uh, some sort of point in the race, or I'm sorry, in each stint almost, where something unhappy happens and drivers have had lots of grip and we're going forward or now going backwards and it's this huge, constantly moving thing that makes for really compelling racing. One thing they have, which Meadowhow does not, is they have the vintage indie, indie registry gang that show up and bring vintage indie cars to not only be marveled at in the paddock, but go round and round and round on track for everyone's delight and entertainment. Mid-Ohio, you've got all the ladders, all the steps of the ladder in the road to Indy. You've, it tends to be some sort of you know, little sports car competition, maybe the global Mazda MX-5 Cup. It's packed, right? That you're never going to be bored at Mid-Ohio. There's always something on track. Gateway, not so much. Not so much, but they do have glorious vintage Indy cars uh, put on by some dear friends, including Mike Lashmet. So, would say that might be the thing to sway you in that direction and also say that where Meadow Ohio's awesome and there's a big crowd, it's a little communal, right? If you're over by turn seven in that group, then you're going to have fun there, but you're certainly not going to see what was going on elsewhere. Gateway, obviously with an oval with some really nice grandstands up high. A, it tends to be fairly packed, but B, it, it's more of being a part of something big. Mid-Ohio, it's a little more private, right, depending on the section of the track. So just, I'd say really, Lori, it depends, or Lordy, whichever one you're, you're going by these days. <laughs> I'd say those are the things I might use to decide which one to choose for your lovely attendance in 2020. Let's go to Simon Rafi. Hey, Simon. He says, with Roger Penske now owning the series and knowing their technical capabilities, do you think they will be involved in the design and development of the next generation IndyCar? I'm just saying this, Simon. I realize that I don't really get to vote uh, on which questions get the most likes, but this is certainly among my favorites of the week, if not the last couple months. Great question, one I hadn't thought of, which is why I'm partially good at my job. I don't believe Penske will ramp up Penske cars to do 
anything significant manufacturing wise when it comes to the next car. I think team owners other than Penske would cry foul there for sure. Yeah, as they should. Uh of all the concerns about conflicts of interest, this would be one where you go, all right, Raj, come on, buddy. You're not awarding yourself the contract to make IndyCar's next chassis. But I do believe this will be an area, and I'm going to ask RP and Tim Sindrick and some others about this when I get a chance. I do believe this is an area where the Penske team can bring some very serious, very serious uh insight and knowledge etc on this front so it's one thing to outsource the design and and whatnot of indycar's next chassis to delara to swift to pick a few others areka Liger, multimatic would say that what i like in this question simon is the really hardcore experience and knowledge contained within the Penske team from a manufacturing standpoint, but also just from a build and assembly standpoint where it's easy for IndyCar to say, okay, we're going to have our engineering and technical group liaise with whichever manufacturer. The folks on our team are really smart. Tino Belli, for example, who's the head of the aerodynamic development. He's an aerodynamic expert. But he's also a chassis design expert, has designed many indie cars back in the day, right? So they have good, good people there. What I like about this, maybe this is working in concert with Tino, is on the Penske side, their ability to say, you know what? We believe there are better ways this could be done. These are the things about the DW12 chassis, for example, that we hate. We cannot do this again in this area, that area. The access to this component is impossible. This is just inefficient. Why is this so wide? Why is this so narrow? Just getting a lot of different things. I love the idea of getting Matt Johnson, Johnson, getting Travis Law, getting uh, Trevor, uh, getting all everybody I can think of who's not just a crew chief, but the hard, you know, the really hardened experienced mechanics on all of their indie cars together. Plus some of the true veterans getting Clive Howell back in get again, bring everyone together and say, let's talk about the right way to do this and the wrong way to do this. What are the pitfalls we can't repeat with this Delar DW 12, where indie cars as a whole really didn't play enough of a role in defining what it would be and what are the areas that really work? What are the things from the past we might consider that was not used, hasn't been used in terms of technology, construction, etc.? There's a lot of knowledge here, Simon, that I really would hope and really believe, uh, really believe that there is something here where Penske can lend exceptional knowledge would also say that in the spirit of non-exclusionism i don't believe that's a word this should be spun out to all the teams hey everybody (laughs) we want to hey blair julian at ganassi and this person over here and that right we want we want you guys we want everyone to come together submit your ideas 
uh, come sit down. Let's talk about it. Let, let's look at the ways to do things better. Let's look at performance. Let's look at weight. Let's look at torsional rigidity. Let's look at materials. Man, imagine that, Simon. Instead of choosing a vendor and pinning your hopes that they get the thing right, which absolutely did not happen with the DW12 in many areas, not all, but many. How about we rely upon the, I don't know what it is, hundreds of combined years of experience in building cars, designing cars across the IndyCar paddock and using the might and intelligence, as I hear Rocky start to chirp again, using the paddock to build a better mousetrap. That, I think, would be pretty cool. So I need to get into that and ask Penske if that's something they would be open to doing. Ben Rayburn, your item here, also one of my favorites of the week. Uh, You said, it wouldn't be hilarious if James Hinchcliffe were to drive a full season or at least an IndyCar 500 ride sponsored by Spam. Spam once sponsored a stock car. Hashtag me personally. I think we, the listeners of the MP podcast, should start a GoFundMe page to make this happen. Look, I'm with you. That's why I just cut and pasted this on Twitter since it came in on Facebook. I think the hashtag GoFundHinch and folks spamming spam to do so, I don't know if it works, but it just sounds like something that needs to happen because it's funny. It's kind of passive aggressive. And if Hinch were to seal a really good drive next year, with spam sponsorship going up against his old team, Schmidt Peterson, Arrow McLaren, this absolutely, absolutely wins. So uh, thank you. <laughs> Tim Falkowitz says, I love hearing your stories about your days as a crew member. He says, your discussions about dampers triggered a question. Any stories you have from your racing days about exploiting the gray area? Well, they weren't ever gray in IndyCar or Atlantics or lights, Indy lights when I worked in across those series. So it was an area that was fully open and therefore pretty fun and awesome. And I loved, loved uh, working on dampers, trying different builds and just see, you know, that's part of the fun of working for mostly smaller teams, not always, but smaller teams, ones that just didn't have, huge amounts of money to hire a ton of individual specialists. So being the guy to do to engineer a race car, for example, while also doing the dampers, that's wasn't uncommon. Don't really see that so much today, right? You don't see a Ben Bretzman, uh, Craig Hampson, you know, hands covered in shock oil, uh, in the transporter tend to have assistant engineer, even if they have a dedicated damper engineer doing that. But Really love that. Would say the one gray area that comes to mind quickly, Tim. So there was a period, uh, almost the mid-90s, where while I was working for, at that time it would have been Atlantic in lights teams, still very much a seasonal thing at that level, right? Uh, Not necessarily full-time employment once the season ended or, you know, look, if we're going testing, let's go test or otherwise, but... Again, just not a time where for some of the smaller and medium-sized teams, you really banked on full-season employment. So 
I just go to Sears Point and pick up work doing a variety of things. One of them was going back to my old shop where I really got my, my start as a professional mechanic and such. Pfeiffer is racing. Rocky, can it, man? Sorry. Uh, buddy, it's not the time. Anyways, uh, this is my life. Uh, send help or beer. So that shop had been bought by Brian Forster, sold by Bob Lesnett, bought by Brian Forster. Why am I mentioning this? Well, I used to run Brian back in, I think, 1990 at Pfeiffer Ridge. And I think he had a family member pass and inherited a lot of money. Lesnet was looking to sell the shop. Brian bought it. And Brian was the drummer on the Partridge family, if you're old enough to remember that show. So that was always the kind of weird, like, oh, well, all right, there you go. Um, he had a client who, let's see, what was going on? No, I was working at that shop. There's someone I knew who in a different shop across the way was a driver who had a spec racer Ford. And that was a purely spec class, hundred percent, everything truly a million percent spec other than the car numbers and the color. Uh, you know, you could put stickers on it and paint it, but beyond that, nothing else could be touched. So he had asked, hey, you know some things about dampers. Um, Any idea what we might do with mine? To which I said, well, it's not legal. To which he said, I know. And I said, oh, okay. So very long story short, this was certainly a gray area. Took the dampers from his Spec Racer Ford. And these, I think, were just crappy, non-adjustable. I don't know what they were. Um, Really basic things. And... Since these were heavy cars that had very little power and kind of rolled and floated and just were not not high-performance vehicles, uh, the main idea was, well, you know, these are all spec. Everyone has to use the same damper, same everything, but what if we just cracked them open and replaced the stock oil with something heavier, something more viscous, something that actually allowed the damper to compress and rebound at a slower rate. Basically, we got thick old gravy going through the damper instead of whatever thinner watery type stuff. And that's what I did. As simple as that. Just trying to go to a heavier weight oil to slow down the motion of the shocks. And I don't remember if it did much because I don't actually think the driver was all that good, but they were interested in doing it. I think that hour of work that I did might have been hour and a half because these shocks had been on the car forever. And it was serious, like big hammers and all kinds of things just to try and crack them open. I don't know. I think I got 250 bucks for doing that. So that was fun, Tim. The the real fun thing, though, is a guy by the name of Bob Lobenberg, who if you've been around for a while, you might know his name. Bit of a prodigy. Formula Ford, just ace of aces. Uh, was in the IMSA GTP series for a while, drove a, a factory March Buick that went a million miles an hour and blew up. I think he earned a pole position or two. Bob, Bob Lobenberg, local guy, uh, gravelly voice, smoked back in the day when you could be a professional race car driver and smoke like a chimney. Uh, I enjoyed Bob, but his personality was a little bit hard to process. Uh, and 
there was evidence of that because he rarely had professional opportunities in a race car that lasted very long uh, because he talked himself out of those things. Well, anyways, he was making money doing, I think, data acquisition, rentals, and analysis on the local club racing level. And he also was doing some driver coaching. And so I remember being in the back at Pfeiffer Ridge with, I guess, his, quote, client, spec racer Ford client, but also the guy that I knew, right? So this was a friend of mine, um, doing this work, and the phone rings. This is before cell phones. Um, and picked it up while I'm in the middle of doing this, and he just ripped me a new a-hole, Tim. Oh, what the hell? Oh, you're just ripping off my guy. Who the hell are you? And I'm like, yeah, right, man. You know, you're there looking at Mr. Gravy Train, and you're mad that he's come to me for something you can't do? I mean, trust me, if he asked you to do it, you wouldn't know how to do something as simple as I'm doing right now. And so I think he told me to F off and called me some sort of something at the end of the conversation. And Bob, on a good day, is like 135 pounds, right? So it's just the all bark, no bite guy. So I just said, look, if anything, that's it's like an extra $50 I got. I got 250 bucks to swap out the oil in a friend's spec racer for dampers. And I got into a heated but comical argument with Bob Lobenberg. I, life, Tim, that's pretty darn good. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Jordan Darwin, who says, MP, last week you mentioned drivers and private jets, which was a question that had been on my mind for a few months. Says drivers with private jets seem rather prevalent in NASCAR and almost never discussed in IndyCar. Which drivers have private jets in IndyCar? And any IndyCar pilots uh, that also drive pilot uh, their planes as well. He says, I know Uncle Bobby and some previous drivers were amateur pilots, but I know of none currently. I don't really know of many, if any, today, Jordan. And I'd say the reason you hear about this in NASCAR with their drivers and not in IndyCar with our drivers is there's a lot of money made in NASCAR by those drivers and not by ours. So, yeah, uh, it might be flying first class, but it certainly isn't owning a jet or flying a jet. All right, I'll wrap up with our man, Graham Ray Hall, and it's 4.07 p.m., and I'm going to continue. And no, I realize that it's now almost 5, which in theory means, sure, drink alcohol. Eh, I'm going to pass for now. I might get up and get some coffee, though. Uh, Mrs. Prue and I haven't gotten a lot of sleep so far this week. Uh, let's see, where should we go? Where should we go? Ron Thompson. Hey, Marshall, I read an article about the man who swindled the Sacramento Kings out of $13 million. I did as well, Ron. Then heard the author interviewed on a podcast. So the interviewer was more interested with how the article was constructed. And he asks, how do I read other people's work? Construction or pleasure? That That's a great question, Ron. Uh, really inside baseball kind of thing. And for those of you who don't give a crap about the how you do it side, the making the sausage side of, of doing what I do in the sport, then I apologize for the next minute or two of an answer. I do both, Ron. I almost always look at construction, trying to pick out the interesting ways that folks present a sentence or paragraph or an idea, the words they choose, how they order those words, where they place them the words they use to start a sentence. 
if there's repetitive use of keywords, redundancies in the hashtag department of redundancy department, that's, I guess, the the writer, reporter, author's equivalent of drivers watching in-car footage of other drivers to see how they do things. If they can spot anything that they do better or things that are cleaner, more efficient, just different ways. So, yeah, absolutely, all the time. There are certain places where I don't because it's just, it's not meant for that. If I am looking at news on a, you know, pick a cable news type website, I'm just looking for headlines to see if there's anything that might interest me to read, not the quality or assembly, but since I do subscribe to the the failing New York Times, I do look to almost everything that I read there for how they put it together, just because they're an institution known for demanding high, high quality in how folks make them words fit onto them old pages. As for pleasure, I don't do that as much as I should. I've actually made a minor commitment to myself to do that, to do more of that. So uh, Frank DeFord, who's one of my favorite writers, the late Frank DeFord, also regarded as one of the supremely great sports writers ever, recently bought one of his books, which is a compilation of decades of his work. And I'm just enjoying that. And I'll tell you, at times I have talent. I mean talent where I look at the finished product and go, that's very unique. Only I could have written that in that way. More often than not, I don't Uh, say that, okay, this news story that I put together, this whatever that I put together, it's great. It serves a purpose. It goes up. It generates traffic or reads or sells magazines or whatever from my clients. But then folks move on to the next thing. So there's different categories. You know, the, the things that tend to be in print on a printed page, not a web page, but actual on paper, those tend to get a lot of labor, really laboring over those to try and make them as decent as they can be. And it's not as if I don't try if it is web-based Ron, but there is also a slightly different mindset to what is happening there of feeding the monster compared to thinking the Pulitzer Prize organization is going to be visiting racer.com or rodentrack.com and deciding, you know, that Pruitt guy, he needs a Pulitzer. Never happening. So, yeah, thanks for asking, though, man. Uh, I do need more pleasure reading, though, because my eyes and brain would benefit from it. I'm going to jump into a whole section here from the Reddit IndyCar group, starting off with 82 GMC Jimmy. It says, Marshall, do you anticipate any big changes implemented either by IndyCar itself or at IMS by Roger Penske and his ownership group next season? It says, hashtag me personally, I feel as though there may be some big announcements in 20, but because the deal doesn't fully realize and finalize itself until early in the new year, Actual changes will be made on the small side with bigger, more noticeable ones coming in 21 and beyond. I would say you can emblazon that across everywhere that IndyCar fans cohabitate, Mr. or possibly Mrs. 82 GMC Jimmy, as that should be the absolute fact. 
there should be nothing different than what you have written here. I do expect month of May. I expect there to be a number of announcements. We're going to change this, improve this, do that. But as we speak, lawyers and managers and all kinds of folks are genuinely hammering out the final details of this sale. So spot on here. Knowing the Penske way as well, and knowing that he said they're not going to go hire some huge new group of people to look after the Speedway and IMS, that they're going to put together a board. We're probably going to see a lot of folks already in the organization, meaning the Penske organization, and IndyCar be the ones to to lead and develop and improve. It means that we don't have a vast assembly of people all of a sudden that are coming in from the outside, nothing else to do, look, evaluate, recommend, and act. That would be the bestest situation. I don't think we're going to have that. And so as a result, the time involved, this is where, as you mentioned, we need to think of 2020 as the year where ideas, concepts, and workshopping changes gets done behind the scenes. I think 21 is where we're going to see the real first significant items happen the bigger items though hey we need to get a new car going here powertrains new engine manufacturers new who knows i think those are are more on the we're going to talk about them in 2020 don't expect anything significant to come in terms of concrete changes and announcements uh, to happen within 2020 Uh, in terms of the competition season or anything else, really. So look to the month of May for some announcements on initial key items. Look towards the end of the season, early off-season for some other bigger ones, but it's going to take them a little while to figure out what they want to do. And for the people that will be in charge of doing those things, coming up with those ideas, really find comfort and stability and putting those things forward you never want to be the person who comes into a big new project and just oh we're gonna do this and change that and just 20 different ideas off the top of my head those people tend not to last very long so gonna go to joe secchi 100 it says this past weekend mr fff i nicknamed fernando alonzo fast effing fernando uh, a couple years ago says this past weekend mr fff owner and driver of fart that being the Fernando Alonso racing team, was asked by the BBC what his plans were for 2020, and he confirmed ongoing talks with Michael Andretti and McLaren. While he said that he had completed 50% of negotiations with Andretti and that the Honda Link is not an insurmountable obstacle, he also said he was talking to other teams. Can you share some insight of what kind of negotiations may be going on? Will Honda require something from Alonzo or Andretti? Or is this just about salaries and sponsors? For example, how many stickers of Alonzo's brand Kamoa should be on the car? Overall, what would you say is the most likely option at this stage? A spam fart entry or an Andretti fart entry or a surprise fart? (laughs) Thank you very much for what you do. He says, P.S. I suggest Potato Award to sub for Bourdais on the Hamburger and French Fry Show. He's funny and fast. That's a that's a good idea. Uh, I, I need to I need to move that 
to the top of the list, provided I don't want to dangle this over the plate too easily because uh, I don't want, you know, other reporters to get too far ahead of me on this. But there's a chance. There, There's a, a stronger chance than I expected that the hamburger and french fry show could continue almost completely uninterrupted, knowing that I think there's one or two IMSA conflicts where Seb would be full-time. But I, there's, I'm heartened by the increased odds of the hamburger and french fry show continuing just in a different pit stall next year. So, yeah. But if not, then uh, an IndyCar at least. Uh, but if not, potato is a pretty good idea. Can confirm that there's at least one other team that has not been mentioned here that has reached out to Fernando regarding the Indy 500. I know this because the team reached out to me uh, asking for contact information. And so... While I'm not saying what the team happens to be, I can tell you that there's there could be some pretty good competition for his services. And I think that's maybe the right way to think about it, Joseki 100. Fernando Alonso, separate from his driving ability, we've obviously seen on his 500 debut in 2017 in a fully competitive car, more than able to win the race. Let's forget less May's thing. The guy in a good car, we know can go to the front, be a threat to win. So that's one thing. I think every team that has the ability to run him knows that, oh yeah, we will bend over backwards. The media attention that comes with him, even if it's diminished a bit right now in what would be his third attempt to win the 500, it's not going to be as much. We understand that. But it's still, it's a pretty solid spotlight. Less so on the North American front, but still a pretty bar, bar, bar. I'm barking all of a sudden. Bar. No idea. I'm losing my mind. Uh, a bright spotlight. <laughs> I need to go listen to some REO Speedwagon to get my mind right. Um, bar. I think teams are looking at Alonzo as well as someone more than maybe even just the driving side could be a pretty significant draw for sponsors. And how often are we able to say that these days in IndyCar? If you could get a hold of this guy, or who knows, potentially this gal, to drive your car, sponsors will come flocking and throw money your way. I think smart teams, very smart teams, look at Fernando Alonso, get the driving part, know that's going to be rock solid, know they could win, that's great. If you look at Andretti, for example, I mean, he's got two, three drivers who could easily win the Indy 500. They're not lacking in quality numbers or abilities to do very, very well at the 500. Adding a Fernando definitely improves their odds, but they aren't short on odds to begin with. What he does, though, uh, is, is certainly bring the ability to Andretti to attract more money. So for talking negotiations, you can expect Fernando to be well-paid. He's not dumb. <laughs> He's not dumb. He knows his value. He is certainly going to demand his value. 
He also knows that his business interests can and need to play a role on whatever he does. As you mentioned, Kamoa. So great. That's great as well. But let's say the, the thing to take home here with Fernando is, ooh, if this guy is not necessarily tied to McLaren, then could we get a hold of him, put him in a competitive car, help our team on that side, but most of all, bring in some extra money. Not going to get back into this as I know I've done this in the past couple of weeks, but the underlying point of, I think every single team, barring maybe spam, needs money. Even Penske is believed to spend, come out of pocket a bit to put together his IndyCar team. Altogether, if you have someone who could bring sponsors, that's not just going to help get that car on track and get Fernando paid and do all those things, but actually generate a profit, help the team to improve, put more money behind its other entries for the rest of the season. Maybe these are teams going into the season, realizing that, hey, you know, we've got two, three, four, five, however many cars, we sure could use some extra money up front or at least know that we're going to get that money here to help cover off the full budget on this entry or that entry that might be a little bit light. If you're going after Fernando and he can do all the things that might get you to victory lane and make your team stronger on the budget side, you absolutely do it. So this to me is going to be interesting. It might be the proverbial bidding war. And when's the last time we saw that in IndyCar for anything? So yeah, interesting times for sure. Let's go to I Forgot My Password, okay? One of my favorite screen names. Do you have a favorite question, softball or otherwise, that you use if an interview just isn't gelling or if it starts to bog down? Some other items here I'll mention in just a moment. I don't. I just try and read the person as best I can and say something stupid or funny or just default to being highly energetic and warm. And most folks respond to some of one of those things. We'll also say that in many, most instances, I don't interview a lot of people that I've never heard of, know nothing about, just true, a blank canvas standing in front of me. That doesn't happen that often, uh, if ever. I usually know if I'm going to interview someone or even if just someone new has come onto the scene. Could be a driver, team owner, or something. Even if I have nothing on the docket to see them, meet them, interview them, or whatever, I'll usually try and do a little bit of research at minimum. So at least I know the background, something. So if I have to write about the person, I can do so. Or if I do meet them, might have some sort of nugget to mention a team that they've driven for, a business thing that they did, whatever. It's pretty rare when folks enter into the little world that I play in of open wheel and sports cars, and there isn't some form of linkage somewhere. Oh, hey, the the right front mechanic on your car. Uh, he and I used to work here, used to know one another. He's a crazy bastard, you know. Has he uh, has he pooped in your, your shoes yet? Uh, it's coming at some point in time. So, yeah. Uh, I'd say that softballs, I don't know the, the softball questions to me, while I guess I do lob them every now and then I try not to ask things that don't interest me. 
And so sometimes you need to ask the softballs for, we'll get into it, but you know, whether there's a advertisement being run on a client's site or magazine or something, and you need to ask a question that fits that business need, there are some exceptions, but I don't think I ask many softballs. If anything, I know I intentionally try not to, but maybe I'm kidding myself and do and don't know it. So there you go. Uh, also says, I appreciate all you do. Hope Turkey Day went well for you. And edit says, I clutched my pearls while listening last week. Stuffing is not dressing. Dressing is mixed and baked separate from the main course, preferably based in cornbread with a bit of white bread, buttermilk, sauteed onion, and celery, sage, and egg for a binder. Stuffing is stuffed into the bird or more usually poured from the stovetop box. And it is terrible and dry. Both are improved with cranberry sauce. Um, so, <laughs> okay. Uh, yes. Uh, raise my hand here. Apparently I have committed a cardinal stuffing versus dressing sin. You mentioned the stovetop box. It isn't terrible or dry. It's how you prepare it, man. It's what you put on it. I'm telling you a little couple little drops of Worcestershire sauce in the right place. Ooh, mm, telling you, uh, Yeah. So, okay, noted. I'm probably going to make the same sin next year, so just a little warning. You also mentioned both are improved with cranberry sauce. Um, yeah, I guess it depends, right? Depends on whether you were raised with or without. I would say that from an ethnic standpoint, that statement could be perfectly served in some households, not in others. I believe I recall cranberry sauce getting busted out in the Pruitt household for a while. And then I think it went away because kind of sort of didn't get used much. I know my wife, African-American family and whatnot, said cranberry my ass. <laughs> uh, no, that stuff's nasty. Uh, we never had it, would never eat it, never think of eating it. And uh, so there you go. And I believe as she presents it, uh, dressing is what I refer to as stuffing because it is or would be this mixed thing, but not put inside the bird. Uh, Or did I have that wrong? No, stuffing. I have no idea. I'm, I'm totally confused. So I think I just said you're totally right. My wife has confirmed I'm wrong, but at least she and her family, and it's not as if they she speaks for all black families, but at least her reaction to the cranberry sauce thing was, no, that's something your people do, not my people do. So anyways, there you go. Uh, let's go to Bob 4-5 dash. Hey, Marshall, a few weeks back in social media, Connor Daly was shown drinking a lot of alcohol and burping up chicken wings. Oh, sorry, misread that. Connor Daly mentioned that he would be announcing his news for 2020 at the end of November. The end of November has come and gone, yet no announcement. Are you able to comment on anything surrounding Connor's 2020 schedule? Says, I hope you, the wife, and your family had an excellent long weekend. We did, Bob. And I'll just share. So, as a byproduct of my wife and her more than year long fight with cancer, and the mobility issues we have alluded to, uh, we are traveling 
four days a week, sometimes five days a week. So on the move constantly and with mobility issues, uh, nothing happens quickly. It's a long process to get up and moving and going in the morning and out the door, in the car, out of the car, etc. back home and so on. So no complaints, just sharing that most weeks are very busy. Feels like there's not a lot of time just to be still and think and really burrow into things. We had four days home, four straight days home, no traveling. I think I drove and got the turkey and all that, but whatever. We had more or less four days of just being still. That was the best gift I've probably, and she as well, we've had in I don't know how long, beyond health and beyond all those things, just to be able to be relatively still for four days. Ah, it's gorgeous. Uh, yes. So first of all, there, there's a bit of a, uh, error here in your thinking, Bob, you believe Connor Daly understands how months work much less days and weeks and can count these things. You know, those are some allegations that have never been leveled at young Mr. Daly. Uh, kidding aside, I love myself some Connor Daly. Uh, the greater question I would pose is, do we have a proper grasp on the announcement strategies of Ed Carpenter Racing? And I would say no. Understanding that team has often been self-funded, have not had major independent corporate sponsors to report to, conform to, etc., would just say that they're a team that since they're since Tony George uh, is the major financial has been the major piece of the financial puzzle for a while, ultimately it's been kind of sort of optional as for meeting some sort of oh this is a traditional time to announce something. Uh, they announce it when they announce it. So we've been expecting the same. Uh, we have every belief that Connor will be the driver sharing the number 20 Ed Carpenter racing Chevrolet being on the road and street courses. And I think that could be a pretty darn amazing combination. Heard nothing to lead me or others who are in the know to believe things have gone sideways, but like you, Bob, you expect something doesn't happen. And I know we're only four days into December, but yeah, uh, it'd be great to hear this. And who knows? Maybe we'll learn about it tomorrow uh, or Friday. Who knows? But I don't pretend to understand the decision-making process behind all the various IndyCar teams and what they do. In the same way, most of them look at me with what I do and how I do it and say, I don't get it, man. Going to go to Timely Tough 7. Dash. I was curious to get your thoughts uh, around the rumors last week where it was shared online that Chip Ganassi had conversations with your man Bourdais. Is there any truth to the fact that Chip would like to get Seb in a car at some point down the line? Whether it would be a one-off in Indy or maybe even a full-time ride in 2021, I know they have a relationship from IMSA and has been documented in the past that Chip has always liked Bourdais. Thoughts? Um, sure. Now, I could be wrong, but I think you're referring to 
me and what I wrote and what I've said. So I might be answering a question on the things I've said. So if that's the case, it's complete fake news. It's hot garbage. That idiot made it all up. I mean, truly just pulled it out of his backside yet again. Um, oh, I, again, I believe I've, I've written this and I know I've mentioned on the podcast more than once. Chip Ganassi Racing absolutely wanted Sebastian Bourdais to drive for them as Scott Dixon's one and only teammate in 2018. That was nixed by Dale Coyne. They wanted the same thing to happen going into 2019. That was always also shot down. And a couple of months ago, when the Aero McLaren SP team was looking to get out of the James Hinchcliffe business, they proposed a straight-up swap of contracts with Dale Coyne. You get Hinch, we get Bourdais, let's go racing. And that was also turned down by Dale. So, yes, why do I mention this? Have I mentioned this? Why is this of any importance to whatever? I just think it's important to know that someone who at least reading some fan reactions and such, and I realize this might be more fan reactions than team owner or any other reactions. Uh, Seb obviously didn't have a great 2019. I know that he looked like he had a winning car at Gateway and made a mistake and crashed. Uh, He didn't have a great season. Firestone made some changes to their tires that didn't seem to really suit Sebastian at a number of tracks. Whereas in 2018, with the same arrow kit and yada, 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 uh, seemed to be far more competitive from race to race. But didn't have a great 2019, didn't win a race. Could say, as some suggested, that, well, past his prime, you know, no one should be crying about him losing his seat. That's just where I think the multiple points of interest from Chip Ganassi Racing, even coming into the 2019 season, they saw value in having Bourdais in their team as a teammate to Scott Dixon. So had things worked out in 18, Ed Jones would not have been in that team. Had it worked out in 19, I don't know if you would be talking about Rookie of the Year, Felix Rosenquist. And then even late summer, Getting close to the offseason, trying to rebuild themselves, start over effectively, do a complete driver change, engine manufacturer change, new additions to the management structure and collaboration with McLaren. Uh, We have a team trying to become a winner, trying to break out of being a perennial mid-pack runner, at least since Simon Pagino left. And we know they tried to get a hold of Colton Hurd and couldn't. We know that they inquired about Scott Dixon. Dixon was never available. Uh, but we know that they looked to Bourdais as someone they believed could be their team leader and also a wonderful coach for Oliver Askew. So I look at his value as expressed by those who were trying to get him as recently as three months ago. And just makes me confident in saying that while if Seb is back in the series next season, 
even in something close or approximating a full-time team, it could be with a team that at least for their recent performances would make you believe they're getting the better part of the deal. Uh, so anyways, that's that. S10 Bond, ES, the number 10 Bond, S10 Bond. Hi, Marshall. You talked about the cooling of interest in hybrid engines in IMSA's DPI class, where presumably GM and Honda are part of that discussion. Wouldn't the same be true for IndyCar as well then? I believe, I don't know if I said that last week. Uh, I don't remember a lot of what I say from week to week on the show, but yes, absolutely. And that's where I think we could be seeing a cooling of hybridization in 2022 on multiple fronts, knowing that Chevrolet, Chevy racing, you know, they call it Cadillac racing over there, but it's not as if there's a whole separate Cadillac structure. It's the, the GM Chevy racing program, uh, knowing that they're involved in the DPI category with their championship winning DPI VR model built by Delara, by the way, knowing that they're playing there, knowing that they're also an IndyCar, obviously is half the engine supply equation, knowing that Honda is an IndyCar is half the engine supply equation, and an IMSA DPI under their Acura brand with Team Penske, having just won the championship, I would say you can absolutely draw a line between the two and say, you know, if Honda, for example, is not interested in hybrids in IndyCar, then they're not going to want them in IMSA or If they're not interested in them in IMSA, they're not going to want them in IndyCar. And the same with Chevrolet. I'm not speaking on their behalf. I'm not saying that I have any official quote from so-and-so saying we're in, we're out, we hate it, we love it, just anything. These are the things that I hear in my role behind the scenes. Also, add a little qualifier. While I hear many things from many people, A lot of that stuff gets filtered out and goes in one ear and out the other. The things that are heard, shared, etc., from folks that are proven to be ones in the know, no nonsense, uh, ones who haven't either burned me with nonsense in the past, or ones that I know that can be trusted, it's when I hear these kinds of things from those people, multiple people, where I go, all right, this is something worth listening to and observing. That is the exact situation that has taken place here in what I've mentioned about continuing to hear about the cooling interest in hybridization, and it would absolutely span IMSA's DPI category in IndyCar in 2022. Let's go to Racer61 underscore bed. I love the screen names. Before my question, been a long-time listener of the podcast, but only my first or second question that I've sent. Just wanted to thank you for doing this. Also, best wishes to you and your family. Well, thank you. This is Marshall. Have you heard anything on whether Richmond will have any support races or not during the IndyCar weekend? I know the original plan mentioned a return uh, announcement was for a compact schedule with qualifying in the 300-lap race on Saturday, but was wondering if anything has changed. This is hashtag me personally, the official hashtag of the Marshall Pro Podcast. I was hoping they would get either USAC Silver Crown or NASCAR Modifieds on the card. Um, mentions a few other things as well. Uh, would say that 
I have not heard anything. I am long overdue. Mentioned this a few times. Probably all throughout November, Jay Frying and I have been needing to catch up on many things. This will be one that I pose as well. I hope if I don't forget. So I apologize. Uh, let's see. Also mentioned that he's just happy that IndyCar is going back to Richmond. Says plan on getting tickets here soon and taking the four-hour trip in what will likely be my first time seeing an IndyCar race in person. Oh, that's awesome. Also says always wanted to attend Barber, Baltimore, Pocono previously. But the seven and a half to nine hours of travel always made it nearly impossible. I'm just going to go ahead and throw out a little shout out for my favorite airline. That being Southwest. Uh, I've seen because they send me the emails because I gave them my email address. So they do that when I don't ask even funny how that works. They appear to have a lot of sales. $49 flights, $59 flights. I don't know. I mean, I think the farthest I've driven to go to a race well i mean i was working but you know it was there was enjoyment to be had probably phoenix i mean that was i think 12 hours i mean i've driven all over i've driven across the country uh just read about someone a couple of guys that broke the the cannonball run record and did coast to coast in 27 hours I know back in 1994 for the SCCA runoffs, my uh, fellow teammate, Gron Perry, and I drove from more or less San Jose, California to Brazelton, Georgia. I know it's not coast to coast, but it's not too far. In 44 hours, and that was driving a dually in a 40-foot trailer with, I think, one sports 2000 in it and loaded with engines and bodywork and lots of 55 gallon drums of fuel and the catalytic converters were almost completely clogged glowing beneath our feet that wasn't great um and so the the freaking thing would genuinely not do over about 55 to 60 miles an hour so yeah um, so that's probably the longest distance I've driven vaguely continuously. I mean, we had to stop for fuel, obviously. And then also we just crashed, I think somewhere around Memphis. Like we just could not stay awake. We had to pull over and slept for like an hour, hour and a half. Um, then we actually stopped and saw my family in Mariana, Arkansas, just quickly. It was a quick diversion. And, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, I'll tell that story some other time, but, I love the fact that you pondered the seven and a half to nine hours of travel in terms of driving, but just telling you southwest.com. I love those people. Uh, The flights are not expensive. The quality of what you get is pretty good and you don't get herded into the damn plane with an arcane boarding system. That's the reason I love them. Most of all, plus the two free bags, just saying as a guy who kind of sort of travels for a living, Yes, there are bigger airlines. There are more luxurious airlines. I'm just about getting between where I gotta, where I am, and where I gotta go with minimal hassle. And yeah, Southwest wins that one. They're not a sponsor of the show. They never would be. It's too small for them to sponsor. But I'm happily, happily, always big advocate. Mike Hull as well. He and I speak often when he's traveling, or I'm traveling, and he always says guess where I am? And I'll say on our favorite airline, he says, yep, absolutely. Um, 
I'll check this out. Hopefully, I'll remember to check this out and see what I can report back. Ed Joris, first, I can't believe there were 37 submissions for the Weekend IndyCar listener Q&A in the first hour. Maybe need to charge to ask questions. I I love I love the the kind comment Ed. At times I think I should be paying people to ask questions though. Second, when you talk about the relative skill level skill level or level that might be a new word. If so, pay me money when you use that. How's that? Of pay drivers, I think the low end of the scale needs to be Dennis Vitolo, as in he's no or she's no Dennis Vitolo. Younger listeners can look him up on Wikipedia. Uh How's this? I would have to disagree. I watched Dennis Vitolo race. Was it Super V's? I believe might have been Atlantix. He was pretty darn good. I have seen drivers that were far worse. I know that Milka Duno is the default for BAD bad, but there have just been some real clunkers throughout the years. I feel bad that ten years ago or so. Myself, Miller, David Malsher, uh, I think Jeff Olson maybe. I pulled those guys in and we did a 10 worst IndyCar drivers of all time. And somehow, and this is a faulty choice, I named Charlie Nierberg as number one. We, but I think I kind of pushed things in that direction. Named Charlie Nierberg and I don't know. I've always felt bad about that. I named some others who were, were genuinely terrible. I remember seeing a Swiss guy who tried to do a couple of races in 1988 with, I think it was Dick Simon, Jean-Pierre Frey, right? He was a capable sports car driver, not great, but capable, just dreadfully out of depth in IndyCar. Uh, You look back through the, you look back through the entry lists and there are just some folks where you go, I don't even, I think I know most of the obscure IndyCar drivers of my lifetime. There's some Giappone Franca, Giappone Franca. I have no idea who the guy is. I know that he tried to make a couple of races, and I don't know, 87 or 88, couldn't, wasn't fast enough, just wasn't capable. Who? Giappone Franca? Without knowing the guy, you kind of maybe got to assert him as one of the worst um, guy. And I don't, I don't know, nothing meant to be mean about this, but there's a guy named Randy Lewis, who is one of the true pioneers of the 80s and I think the early 90s as well. The finding corporate dollars to go motor racing IndyCar guy, right? So paid paying driver. He's a pay driver, hundred percent. All he did found major Oracle freaking Oracle. One of the world's biggest companies was one of his sponsors for many years. Often drove for smaller teams, but again, the whole time strictly, I write a check. You put me in the car guy. He was among the worst if we're talking full-time guys in the series from, you know, mid-80s to, I think, 90 or 91 was his last go-round. I don't think he ever got close to a podium ever, you know. Maybe on a day where a lot of cars didn't finish, he was ninth or 10th or 11th, 
something along those lines, but no hope. Not enough talent to remotely get close to anyone, but not bad, funnily enough, right? Never <laughs> never had much of a, a shot. He wasn't bad at Indy, right? He was not bad at the 500 by any means, but in the field, he was the joke, right? He was the guy with the Mario Andretti's, A.J. Foyt's, and Rick Mears, and Danny Sullivan's, Little Al, and Michael, among all these amazing drivers. Then there was kind of that second tier, Raul Boisel's, Jeff Brabham, uh, Derek Daly, maybe. you know, Ari Leyendijk was kind of in that not-quite-there phase, came on strong, obviously, but there was kind of that second tier behind the legends. And then there was kind of this, it wasn't even a third tier. It was about fifth. And Randy Lewis was maybe the leader of them. But even if you put him in a brand new Penske, even if Roger put him in a car, I was never going to win, never going to visit the podium, just wasn't there. And yet, he wasn't bad. So is it easy to say a hero Matsushita? Possibly. Uh, could it be... Like I said, a Jean-Pierre Frey, who's just a bizarre footnote, eh, maybe. I don't know. Do we look at <laughs> uh, a racing gardener or some of these other folks where you go, I have no idea. Didn't know you existed before. Not totally convinced you're a real person. You might be a member of the witness relocation program. All these things are entirely possible. Jeff Wood is another one. Did very well in Atlantics. Uh, you know, maybe never had great equipment, but you know, never really stood out as someone you'd want to put in a car. Uh, but he did find his way into the series. Was he one? Again, I don't know. I would just say that Vitolo, while his career was anything but distinguished, I wouldn't put Dennis Vitolo in the top 10 of my jokers that you just pray uh break on the warm-up lap and are in your way causing problems granted nigel mansell would likely disagree uh knowing that dear dennis tried to uh hump the back of his car at the speedway but uh other than that yeah i wouldn't i love the vitolo reference but i would i wouldn't say that he belongs there ed uh let's see how about Let's see, the next thing you mentioned also, if uh, we do have to replace French Fry, Connor Daly must be that guy. I don't think that's a bad idea. Uh, I really don't. I'm not the tallest guy in the world. I mean, I'm not short. I mean, I'm six foot, six foot and a half, maybe six one. I don't know. So I try and keep in mind that you want to, if you can, have a co host that's at least in your general height range just from a filming standpoint so that you don't have to go super wide the whole time and be crazy zoomed out. I know you guys don't really want to zoom in and see me, but point being is it's nice if you can zoom in a little bit, a little bit of a tighter shot. Connor not being someone who is blessed with height and stretchiness, you know, maybe I could just squat down. How's that? It's not like he's short, short, but just again, he's not. Yeah. Uh, vertically, a little, a little bit of work to do there. Let's go to uh, Jamin Tuttle. 
So, Jamin, both you and Miller have talked about Connor to ECR as a move. Sure deal, done deal. He says the delay in the announcement due to the diligent work trying to make it a full season. He says, hashtag me personally. I, for short, really hope so. Haven't heard anything, Jamin, about the delay being due to making it a full-time deal. I have heard there could be some sponsory things, though. Uh, how's this? If a independent driver who moves from team to team, not because they want to, but just that's the way things have been, is able to find a committed sponsor that wants to go with them. Maybe not a total surprise if some others in the paddock, maybe ones that he's driven for in the past, or maybe ones that he hasn't but are just in need of money, really do their best to go after those sponsors, maybe caring less about the aspirations of a unaffiliated driver and caring more about finding the money they need to do their thing. So not saying that's the answer. I'm just saying that I've heard that could be a thing. Also heard that if that is true, that Connor might've actually found some other sponsors. So don't know if any of that's anything, but I've heard that from some smart people. Let's go to William Matson. William says, Hey Marshall, to get my off season racing fix, I've been watching the 1990 cart season on YouTube. It's a great choice, William. Really, uh, I was there for a lot of it. Uh, I don't remember what it was, what team, what I would have been doing that around, but support races and such, uh, working in support series, as a great season. It says the big three of that season clearly are Penske, Newman Haas, and Gallus. says, I'm fairly new to IndyCar and haven't heard of Gallus before. Can you share any stories you've heard about Rick Gallus and his team? I hope my memory isn't failing me, but all I've ever known about Rick is being a Albuquerque and New Mexico-based car dealer, having considerable success as a dealer, and doing as many have done in the sport, not just IndyCar, but lots of forms of racing. Business-minded, racing-minded, promotion-minded dealership owners using their profits to start a racing team, sponsor a driver or otherwise, and then do more and become more. So that, to my knowledge, is Rick's story. And I haven't spoken with him in forever, seen him in forever, only ever respected the guy. Really thought that he, uh, how's this, going from being a, again, just a name, Gallus, Gallus Racing, and there being a little bit of knowledge, at least to start, that he was a, a dealership owner. To think that he's gone from that regional, southwest, car dealer guy, loves racing, gets into racing, is an Indy car. All of a sudden, I should say all of a sudden, but years later, sponsored by major, major companies. Molson. For example, you know, Takate when Adrian Fernandez was there. I know that car radios today, it's no longer a thing, but Craco was once a huge, you know, really big company selling a lot of units. Not only a sponsor, but also partnered with Maury Cranes, founder of Craco for Gallus Craco Racing. 
this is a guy who, again, that's the thing that I really appreciated about Rick is that he is someone who had a passion, used his money, used his business, got into the sport, promoted the sport. I know it benefited him. I know he sold a lot more cars. I know that awareness was built and did well enough to attract very significant companies to fund the racing. So all the way down to forming his own R&D development company with Alan Mertens, Galmer, that's obviously the first letters of Gallus, and then the first three of Alan Merton's last name, Mer, Galmer, was being used to do development on the Lola chassis that they were using in the CART IndyCar series. And for 92, they went ahead and built their own chassis. Many of you might know the Galmer G92 chassis powered by a Chevrolet engine driven by Allenser Jr. won the 1992 Indy 500. Not just, I guess many folks know it as the closest finish of all time. I think that's, has it gone away? I don't remember. Um, But to me, the real big takeaway is, think about that. Rick Gallus went as far as not just securing major brands to sponsor his team, but also to go as far as building his own Indy car and winning the Indy 500 with it. When we talk about Roger Penske having done that, still very impressive. Knowing Roger's background, captain of industry, billions of dollars, you'd be surprised that he didn't do such a thing and win and achieve all the things that he did. So not saying it's easy, but it makes sense. For someone of Rick Gallus's stature, regional stature, not a huge billionaire with a 30,000 employees or 60,000 or whatever the number is that Roger has. I just say this guy's story, the more that I speak about it, this really deserves uh, some sort of in-depth written piece by me, or if I can find the time and have the ability here sometime in the months ahead, since it doesn't look like I'll be traveling anytime soon while my wife still needs uh, 24-hour care uh, delivered by yours truly. Uh, I'd love, well, A, first of all, I keep getting yelled at by Uncle Bobby uh, for having not flown down to see him and Lisa. Uh, So I need to make that trip to Albuquerque, but would love to go spend some time and maybe do a real in-depth My Life in Racing Career episode with Rick Gallus. And then I also need to stop uh, on the outskirts of Phoenix and see my uncle Harley Cluxton to capture some more podcasts there. So yeah, maybe I need to just hit the good old Southwest here, William, and see what I can come back in the old podcast machine. Uh, Ryan Terpstra. Hey, Ryan. Uh, F1 silly season is done. So they've started the 2021 silly season already. Seems like IndyCar's 2020 silly season is far from over. Says, I think we also have a relatively decent picture of what Coin and Ed Carpenter Racing are going to settle on. So what about Carlin? Do we think they'll have two cars full-time? Yes. According to Trevor, when we last spoke, and I've called more than once since then and haven't gotten a hold of him, that's okay. It happens. Uh, he said two cars full-time is what they plan to do. Uh, so there you go. Um, as I've written, uh, I believe that set Sergio Sete Camara, Camara, is if he's not announced as either a coin or Carlin driver, I'll be very surprised. I 
would love to tell you that I, I know, and I'm just playing it off. I don't. I really don't. Um, I think Kamara could be one of the solutions there. I think if I go on what I've heard he's has to work with financially, it might be a much better fit on the coin side than the Carlin side. So that's why I again, not saying one will happen more than the other, or who knows, maybe both won't happen. Maybe he'll end up at Foyt. Maybe he'll end up nowhere. But at least for what I have heard he has to offer financially, I think that might be a, a easier fit for a green light at coin than Carlin. Charlie Kimball, as we know, is working hard on options. Both Carlin and Foyt. And beyond that, there are a couple other drivers I've heard about, haven't written about them yet, so I don't want to mention them here. I'm hoping to get that done here soon, though. Finding time to do my normal routine of just kind of writing about what I want and filing stuff whenever. I, I look forward to getting back to those days. Um, I'm hoping to do that soon here, Ryan. And so if I can, maybe I'll mention a few others. Sadly, sometimes, as I have found, some of these things end up getting announced <laughs> before I've had a chance to write about it in what, at least up until that point, was something that I had that was uh, somewhat new or folks didn't know about. And then we have situations where the thing I've known about for a little while, another reporter hears it or finds out and is the first to write it. So all those scenarios could happen. Um, I I've, have been last to the party on too many occasions for my liking of late, but I just have to accept that as part of the way things are these days. Uh, let's go to Brennan Jackson. Hey, MP, I love helmet designs. I love this question, by the way, and I apologize for my answer coming up. Brennan says, I love helmet designs. I like to paint tiles and cheap canvases with my favorite driver's designs. Unfortunately, it's particularly difficult to find images of IndyCar drivers' lids online compared to F1, where a quick, quick search Yields a video with pictures from the front and both side views. Says, I can't even find a good side shot of Joseph Newgardens, and he's the champ. Are you aware of a spotter's guide to IndyCar helmets existing somewhere? If not, that is content I'd like to see someone tackle. Man, wouldn't it be great if someone put in the time to do the thing for you that you want? Pardon me, Brennan. I'm taking the piss a little bit here. Yeah, uh, I hear you. I mean, Formula One driver helmets, uh, since the cars look identical, and often with the halo in place, it's even harder to see who's who and what. The driver's helmet tends to be the thing that folks cue off of. So therefore, I think there's a lot more attention paid to that, whereas an IndyCar, uh, team cars do not look the same uh, in most instances. So it's easy to know that if you're staring at the two AJ Foyt racing cars, if we're talking the ABC supply livery, we knew that one was primarily red with blue accents. The other one was primarily blue with red accents. Pretty easy to know who's who before having a look at the driver's helmet. Would just say that I am a giant fan, Brendan of if you want something and it would help you and it would please you to do that thing so that you're able to do the thing that you like and that pleases you. I can guarantee you if you spend an hour on the interwebs typing in 
IndyCar drivers' names and or going to their hashtag me personally websites and their team sites and their social media pages, you will find multiple photos of every single one. Guaranteed. 100%. So, yeah, I think it's cool that you love doing that. The painting tiles and canvases and such would just tell you that uh, of course, I mean, look, Ben, I'd love for someone to come and do my podcasts every week <laughs> so I can just, I don't know, sleep or do something else. But yeah, if it's something you like and it's something you want to do, don't wait for someone else to do it, man. Get off your behind and do it. Uh, there is, tr- in this instance, there is no excuse not to. And who knows? Maybe it's something other people would like. Maybe it's a brand for you to develop. Maybe it is something you post on a page. Maybe it's a video that you do. I don't know. But if it's something that you like and you see it is not being done, and I can guarantee you all the images you want can be found and used or used as references, uh, don't look to someone else to do the thing that you like, man. Get off your backside and do it. So, And let me know if you do. I look forward to seeing it. Let's go to Patrick Gaffney. Love this question, Patrick. A couple weeks ago, you mentioned a disconnect between the two teams at Ed Carpenter. It says, getting rid of the advantage of having two teams. And this is in reference to having heard throughout the season that between the number 20 and number 21 car, there wasn't necessarily a lot of really fun work going on between the engineers, and things broke down a little bit into two separate camps. So Patrick's. So his question is this, how similar do driver styles need to be in order for the sharing of information to be effective? Says if you have two drivers who have uh, greatly different setups and prefer greatly different things, does that diminish the benefit of having two teams? Well, it can, but not always. Let's look at one of the, the most shining examples of how differing styles can actually play differently within a team and to one driver's favor. So if we think back to the Chip Ganassi racing era, target Chip Ganassi era, where Dario Franchitti and Scott Dixon were teammates, Dario's driving style, polar opposite from Scott. Dixon's someone who really likes the nose of the car to be the front tires glued to the ground. Not an oversteer guy. He doesn't want... He's not intentionally asking for oversteer and driving sideways, super drifting all the time. Needs the front of the car to be super positive. Touch the wheel, turn the wheel, boom, it moves. If the back end of the car slides a little bit, he'll catch it. He's fine, but let's get the front of the car crazy reactive. Dario, opposite. Drives off the back of the car. Needs the back of the car to be super extra, quadruple glued to the ground. That can often bring some understeer. So he's not a guy who just is living for understeer, but again, they need the car to do two totally different things. As we saw, especially during the first couple of years that Dario was there, that was very much his team. Not saying that the team didn't try and give Dixon what he needed, but just if we look at who was able to get the most out of that car back in the pre-DW12 era, would also say that that chassis maybe favored uh, Dario's driving style a little bit more. 
Nonetheless, we saw that within the team, we had two totally different directions. Dario seemed to be able to get what he needed out of the car, better, faster, you name it. And Scott, for a while, he was struggling a little bit. If we're just talking head-to-head competition with Dario. As time went on, definitely the organization was able to better deliver what the two of them needed. But it was clear that without having two drivers wanting similar things united in that capacity, the team was unable to go about its engineering and its off-season and, and I guess, in-season R&D in a mutually beneficial way. And so, frankly, it usually leads at some point to, all right, we either have to fund two significant R&D programs or we need to try and find as many general things as we can. Maybe one benefits one driver more than the other, and that's just the way it is. And I'm not saying that's exactly what happened at Ganassi, just saying that that's not uncommon. We see that with the Delar DW12 when it came out, if you look 2012, 2013, definitely saw, especially in 2013, you saw Dixon really starting to get the upper hand a little bit. Still an understeery car, but this just seemed to be something that as Dixon adapted a bit, was able to drive uh, a car that maybe was a little bit more to Dario's liking if necessary, he could be faster and more effective. But I can tell you this, Patrick, if Dario and Dixie both had the same driving needs, I think that team that won, what, three championships in a row and 500s and all kinds of things during this Dario and Dixie era, I think they would have been just even more unstoppable, just crushing. So, yeah. If you can, you really do want drivers on the same setup need type of page. I won't go too nerdy here, but even then, if you like a car that is super nose positive, has a a, a predilection towards oversteer possibly, there are different ways to achieve that. Two totally different. There's more than two ways, but there are many ways to achieve that handling characteristic. And even there, you could have two drivers that say, yes, our driving styles are the same, but we need very different setups to make us happy, even if we're asking the car to do the same thing. So it's a rarity when you get two drivers, same in style, and also like the same exact way of setting up the car. If you can achieve all of those things, Patrick, uh, and you're in a good team, boy, you're you're in a pretty happy place. That's another thing, too, just to close on this. This is an item where over the years, not saying all the time, but this is an item over the years where when trying out new drivers, testing drivers to see if they might be the one to join your team along with, you know, maybe an established star, It's not always just lap time. Most drivers can come pretty darn close to one another. Sometimes teams, the smarter teams, have looked at how the driver makes their speed, what kind of setup they need, if the things they want to do that are just way outside the realm of how they normally engineer a car. If you already have an established star and you're looking for a new co-driver and that co-driver is very quick but maybe not like, oh, my God, sign him now. Sign her now. Just best of a generation right here. Gonna, we get a hold of them. 
we're going to go straight to the moon. If you're dealing with options, you've got a lot of drivers who are pretty darn good in a similar realm who you know could do a good job for you. You're going to take in consideration, into consideration how they make their speed and what they need. Does it fit or blend with the primary driver or not? So sometimes when you hear folks tested but didn't get the job, it isn't necessarily just because of the stopwatch. Let's go to Simon Rafi who says, MP, where do Firestone make their IndyCar tires? I know that they're owned by Bridgestone, so they're made in the USA, Japan, or elsewhere. I believe the answer is Akron, Ohio, Simon. Uh, so yeah, and Firestone's building a new dedicated race tire building, I guess, facility there to do this as well. So pretty darn cool. All right, I just had to go get some coffee because, well, yeah, I need to. Let's move to where we're going to go. Paul Trahan, MP, it's time to break out the wish lists. What gag gifts do the IndyCar drivers get this year from you? <laughs> Thanks, Paul. I love questions like these. What do, who do I give? What do I give? Who do I give to what? Man, I just give up. Truly, this show gets no better. Uh, anyways, I don't know. Maybe this is some form of like prison release, right? Maybe some of you were just let out of the county jail, let out of prison. Instead of community service, you've been instructed to listen to my stupid podcast for 50 hours or some kind of thing, and then you'll be free. So uh, that's maybe the bar that I've set for myself here. I'm not even sure if I'm hitting that. All right. What kind of gag gifts? Well, I mean, if we go to the top, we go to New Garden here. I think we got to get them. You know, those those gag chompers, the fake teeth, the kind of, you know, buck, horrible, whatever teeth. He was so self-conscious throughout the year having to not only have braces, but just really try and get some painful toothification items corrected. He was, I think, the final guest that I arranged for the live shows this year. It's on the one that we did at Monterey. It was actually Saturday evening. Um, so pretty cool here for the championship leader and came to be our new season-long champ. Come out and spend uh, the eve or some time with us before going and winning the title the next day. Did the awesome show promotional poster drawn by Roger Warwick with him on it where he smiled and he commented and complimented Roger and thanked us for using his newly straightened and happy teeth, not the kind of crooked snaggle tooth. So I would have to say the good old snaggle tooth, fake teeth. That'd be something you give Joseph right away and make him just wear that the whole time and try and drink with it at the, the IndyCar Christmas party where certainly folks will be drunker than I am right now. Simon Pagano. What do, what do you give Simon Pagano? I would give him something that always undid itself. He's has a, a watch sponsor. If I could, I'd work with that sponsor privately to give him a new watch, some sort of special Indy 500 winner commission, one of one, but somehow the wristband always undid itself. 
or maybe if there's some sort of coveted pair of shoes that he likes, something where the laces always come undone. He's a very specific guy. Get Make sure every little hair is perfectly done before he steps out. He is anal and OCD. And so just the idea of something that's just always a little bit off and always just not quite right. See, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a gag gift like everyone in the room goes, ha, ha, ha. It'd be one of those things where myself and any others that I let in on the joke would just be laughing under our breath a bit, watching him just kind of, damn, watch, what the hell is this thing always coming on my shoes? And if there was a belt that he loved and we could get that to kind of unbuckle itself a little bit, if there was some sort of mechanism that would bring his fly down a little bit so his pants are partially unzipped, uh, just these kinds of things where the stuff that he wears, since he's so image conscious, just always undermining him. I think that would be the funniest damn thing in the world. Uh, Rossi, I have no idea. I'd probably just give him like a ham. I don't even know if he eats red meat. I don't know if he likes ham, but I, uh, Rossi, for me, personally, hashtag, might be the hardest guy to buy for. Because while I've come to really like Alexander's character and personality, I have no read. Now, he, we know, is super OCD. Hinch has spoken many times on the show about when Rossi comes over, the place is just immaculate when he leaves. Everything is straight and in order and clean, right? That, so I got that. But, you know, that's, you know, what are we going to get him? Maybe cleaning products. Maybe we get him some big yellow doing the dishes type gloves to wear. Maybe that's it. Maybe, and we get those stylized too with whatever brand he uses, OMP or Sparco. Maybe some big dish cleaning gloves, big old rubber ones, but done up to look like racing gloves. Maybe that's it. Maybe he'd get the message that it's okay if things aren't always tidy, says the guy who just gave in many years ago to that concept. Well, all right. We're not going to have time to do everybody. Uh, power. What do we get power? Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> do we get him a mouth guard just because we assume he's constantly fighting people and being punched randomly on the street? That could be it, right? Um, what else do we get him? I um, I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm at a bit of a loss with power because he's so crazy. He's one of my favorite people, so none of this is bad. But he's so damn crazy. It's, just, it's hard. What do you buy with power, right? The other thing, too, I'm concerned, like if I got him tickets or bought him some sort of travel package to go to some, I don't know, retreat to see some sort of swami or guru or whatever type leader he would join the cult right i mean so that'd be the fun thing but again we wouldn't see him till like 10 years later and he'd have a beard like down to the ground and he'd be best friends with willie nelson so i'm not sure there there's 
Power is one of the few drivers where I fear the the thing you might get him as a gag gift could actually backfire, and he'd either you know somehow kill people with it or get punched more often or join a cult. So your twenty eighteen eighty five hundred winner will power boys and girls. All right, who's the last one we should pick for? Let's go with Santino Ferrucci. I know that a couple of weeks ago we were casting the IndyCar movie, and I, I mentioned Kate McKinnon from Saturday Night Live to play Santino. I don't remember if I thought of this since then on my own or someone else recommended it, so I apologize if I'm unintentionally borrowing it from you, but I would get him a day with Chris Kattan. Also, a num- another ex... Well, granted, Kate's a current Saturday Night Live cast member, but the ex... Saturday Night Live cast member Chris Kattan, because I think folks would have a really hard time telling them apart. Um, Yes. If we could get him dressed up as Mango and then have Santino dressed up as Mango, I know it's a bit of a gag, but oh, that, that might be comedy gold for those of us who loved SNL when Kattan was on the show. Uh, where else? Where else are we going to go here in the limited time we have left? Paul Davis, which Marshall, which story centered around the 8,500 do you think would be the best for Hollywood to bring to the screen? Paul mentioned this after watching Ford versus Ferrari and also mentions that turbo and Joe Tonto sequels don't count. All right. Dang it. Paul, you kind of hemmed me in here a little bit. I know when I was asked about this a couple weeks ago, I mentioned one of my heroes, Indy 500 winner, Jimmy Murphy. I think his life is just absolutely deserving of some sort of feature, whether it's cinematic, go to the movie theater, see it kind of thing, or just an amazing documentary that's more television, whatever. But if I had to pick another thing that comes to mind, huh, where do I go? So that's more of a biopic, right? That that's that's a person. I'm wondering if is there something that we need to look at style-wise. So Murphy's era, late teens, right? Late nineteen. I'm sorry, late portion of the teens, as in 1900s, not the current teens that we're in, uh, to the early 20s and such. That would be fascinating. I I know we're kind of sticking in that era. I would love to see something about the first Indy 500. I think that would be fascinating, and that would have to be a, a full cinematic thing. If we're going to recreate something, I, I, I would just love to see a, a true depiction of what it was like for the teams building cars, entering cars, the drivers enduring and competing. I, I think that would be amazing. I don't know how widespread that would be appeal-wise. I mean, maybe we can get Christian Bale and uh, Matt Damon in that too, but it's just such a big part of American history, culture, and otherwise. I think that would be amazing. This is maybe another biopic, but it's, it leans on the technical side. I, I'm a big fan of Harry Miller. Uh, I think his cars, his designs, his ingenuity, everything that came out of what Miller did the 20s and 30s. Ooh, 
And then you think about Leo Goosen and you think about the Offenhauser engine and just so many things from cars to engines to just, I think his life is fascinating. I think that's one that I would love to see depicted knowing that there's so many things. He's a hero of mine as well. I think the golden week, as I refer to it, that being Dan Gurney's Le Mans win and Spa win, Spa Formula One in 1967. I think that could be pretty amazing. It still plays, you know, same-ish time as Ford versus Ferrari, so maybe that would uh, not fit exactly. I know you said centered around the Indy 500, but I'm just trying to think out loud here of things that could be uh, have some sort of attraction. Maybe the one that jumps out most, Paul, maybe, again, I don't know. And I know some folks have said we need to do something around 1994, the Beast, the uh, secret Ilmore engine badge by Mercedes, Roger Penske and those things. I think that would be great. I think that would be phenomenal. That would be a lot of fun. Two things come to mind, though. One is the era. I think something this it could be racing but i think it could also be more on the human side be all about casting and writing all about casting and writing but this mostly 60s era late 50s pretty much all throughout the 60s even the early 70s at indy more so maybe on the short oval dirt track type events man this was this was the most deadly time imaginable robin miller speaks about it all the time of you know losing countless people going to funerals seemingly on a weekly basis i can't foresee how we ever get back to that time in racing obviously thankful that that time has passed and gone by this to me if I'm talking something that I believe could transcend something where those who do or don't like racing really find something here that they enjoy. I think it's in a depiction of that era, obviously cast properly with all the legendary names of the time, but also those who died, those who were gravely injured I think that there's something fascinating here about we're talking men, right? The sport was not equal in any way, gender wise, nor was it equal ethnically. I mean, again, uh, this is a time where Anglo-Saxon men by and large um, were willfully going into competition and losing their lives, losing their friends, losing their teammates, losing their drivers, losing whether it was a mechanic who could say that, a team owner, sponsor. This was the deadliest time. And that, the death, that isn't the draw. That isn't the attraction. It sounds a little perverse to say attraction. But that isn't the attraction. It's the what kind of steel did you have inside of you? What kind of fortitude did you just put such things out of your mind? How were you affected? Some drivers were 
definitely affected. Stop driving and or were slower or took fewer risks. Some powered through. Some became champions, multiple champions. Some won the 500 multiple times. This era, this deadliest era, I'm, I think it'd be a fascinating character study looking at how these men performed as athletes, performed as daredevils, knowing the risks and how a significant crash, a tire failure, a broken suspension, dead, period, if not significantly, permanently altered physically. That, that to me, is just a very different thing. And repeating the obvious here, so glad that it's no longer a thing. But I think there's something pretty serious here that almost anybody would find compelling because it is human drama. It is having to explore the depths of will, of bravery, of facing demons, of answering that voice in your head that might be saying, don't do this, stop doing this. It might be some serious mental issues. Worry, concern, nervousness, just many things that can manifest out of this kind of pressure. I think, Paul, and I don't mean to get too serious here, I think there might be something really fascinating to explore that is centered around the Indy 500, greater oval, dirt, you name it, USAC-style racing back then as well. We know that all the, the greats of the Indy 500 were, by and large, constantly busy. Uh, racing all manner of things, and that's where a lot of these you know harrowing moments and stories and fatalities took place. So I think that would be one. The other one that I'd just love love to see similar some similar tones, and that would be the era era of the board track racers. So again, kind of the nineteen ten decade, nineteen twenty, a little bit. Um, that to me is also, that's just the scariest, what I believe to be from everything that I've read, the scariest period in time. <laughs> so apply a lot of what I just said about getting into the 60s and what drivers went through and faced and experienced. And I think almost all those things would apply to some sort of amazing story about board track racing because it had all the same elements, but was just crazier. All right, going to wind things down a little bit here. Jim Kaiser, thank you again for our weekly haiku. He says, trying to make sense of the wild off season leads us to after news galore, the next shoot to drop may be Connor to Team Ed. I love it. I love it. Uh, Carlos Villalobos. Hey, Carlos. Little note here. Really appreciate Carlos. He's someone that on social media is either always making humor or saying intelligent things. And as someone who aspires to do those things on a regular basis and does not always stick the landing, I appreciate those who do like Carlos. This MP, considering the auto, the auto industry is moving in different ways, would it be more attractive for the manufacturers to put together, say, a three-cylinder 1.2-liter internal combustion engine and then rely on the rest through electric horsepower 
with the same power goal of, say, a 1,000 horsepower. Seems that preferences in tech will change many times between now and 2022. Uh, Great question, Carlos. Yes, this is beating a similar drum that I've been on. I would not say three cylinders, 1.2, exactly this thing. What I would say is IndyCar needs to think quickly about what it should offer manufacturers in terms of options. We know that Chevy and Honda have agreed to a 2.4 liter, up slightly from the current 2.2, a 2.4 liter twin turbo V6. Both have agreed to a roughly 50-ish, maybe 60 horsepower if things go super well. Kinetic energy recovery system adding to the horsepower figure. I would just say that, man, if if I'm having to, if I'm elected, elected, hired, nominated, something. If Jay Fry calls says, all right, Pruitt, although we know you're an idiot, we're going to ask you to do this thing. We're throwing out our engine rules that we've announced for 2022. Whatever you say, that's what we're going to do. First of all, I'd say, well, thanks. It's been good enjoying the IndyCar series. Uh, and I apologize for its impending doom. After that, I say, engine manufacturers, we need to give you a box to play in. This is a space inside the engine bay where you need to fit a motor and your choice of hybridization. There you go. Because I think if you do anything more than that right now, Carlos... I think you paint yourself into a pretty ugly scenario where, although we're talking, you know, what, a five-year engine formula, something like that, Think we're in this really bizarre phase. And Robin Miller and I just had this discussion. Well, it's more him listening because he doesn't understand a lot of this stuff. We have a situation where what the auto industry has known as the way, the means, the light, the truth, the everything. What it is known as changing, changing fast, and we do not know when it is going to get to a place where it is stable. This is happening right now, and it's happening in the middle of a time where there's an announced formula change for both IndyCar and IMSA as well, DPI, with its very top class. Both have said in 2022, their top class, IndyCar, there's only one class, but the the top thing that they do, their showcase formula, is changing. And it's changing to something that they plan on holding on to, locking in place for, again, approximately five years. In any other decade, this would be just absolute boilerplate normal yep you got it sure we've announced it this is what it's going to be bring it they're going to come and then we're going to race ah, again just business as usual we can't do that anymore i shouldn't say anymore we can't do that now and i don't know when we're going to be able to go back to doing that and that's because we're in the midst of this <laughs> It feels like almost once in a lifetime. Maybe it is. I don't know. But it feels like this once in a lifetime change within the auto industry. And it's coinciding with a point in time where two of North America's 
biggest or oldest racing series have announced that they're making fundamental changes to their formula. The fundamental changes aren't being done for the sake of making changes. Those changes are being done to try and appeal to the auto industry. Hey, we're going to do things a little different, hopefully, to get more of you here, to build more cars or become new engine manufacturers, whatever it might be. We're going to make these changes trying to give you what you want to sell your cars, to see value in us. Then again, hopefully spend money with us and buy lots of TV ads and sponsor events and you just you name it. And so the issue here, Carlos, is both series have been brutally late to adopt hybridization. Just silly late. No disrespect. It's silly late. Formula One, which was frankly late, went this route in what, 2014? So we've just finished the fifth season of hybridization in Formula One. If you wind back from there, the 24 Hours of Le Mans, the FIWEC, they went hybrid in what, 2012? I mean, <laughs> I'm just saying. These technologies are old. They're old. I'm super glad that IndyCar and IMSA decided that they need to get there. But the bad thing, the unexpected thing that has happened, is after announcing they were going there, and while not knowing how fast change might happen, the concept of hybridization in road cars has fallen out of favor. It has just become something that most manufacturers have said, nope, either we're doing it now, but we're going to phase it out, or we've never done it and we're not going to. We're just making the leap directly from internal combustion engines to full electric. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be with every model, but we can see we're wasting our time if we spend a lot of money developing hybrid electric uh, internal combustion engine combinations for our road cars. So the ones that are doing it know that they're going to be winding that down and stopping it. And those that haven't said, we're not even considering it. We're going, we're making the full leap straight to electric. So how do you then, as a racing series, trying to appeal to manufacturers, say, hey, we got a new formula. <laughs> it's not even here yet. It, calendar-wise, we're in 2020. It's not even going to be here for 2022. We're two years away from getting to our next formula. So two years from now, we're going to go to the thing that you said you don't either don't want or never going to do. And then when we go there, we're going to do that for five years. <laughs> so not laughing at either series, right? There's no, no malintent here, but there's some really unfortunate timing where two series that are way too late adopting hybridization have decided to do so in what has turned out to be the automotive industry more or less turning its back, saying, nah, man, you may as well announce 
In 2022, you're going to carburetors and drum brakes because that's a hybrid power plant's going to mean just as much to us as that. We're going to radial tires. I mean, this is this is setting what will be old timey, okay boomer technology as future tech that hasn't even arrived and would in theory be here till 2026 2027 you you just can't and that's all because over the last year pretty heavily over the last couple of months you've had automotive manufacturer after automotive manufacturer say in very clear and public terms nope ain't doing it nope not us if we're going to race it's going to be electric or nothing if we're going to sell it it's either going to be one or the other the hybrid of putting those two together nope well that leaves indycar in a lurch that leaves imsa in a lurch Another caveat to offer here, there are some manufacturers that have said, yeah, we would actually like to go hybrid. Those, I would say, are the ones who probably have not defined their future strategies. Those are probably the ones who are going to wait as long as possible to go fully electric. Of the names that I've heard of the manufacturers that have been pushing back, Those are some who are racing in the series right now, both IndyCar and IMSA and DPI. There aren't many of them, so I'm not exactly, you know, giving you a mystery here. Some who aren't in the series, I continue to hear, have said, yeah, hey, hybrid, it's really important to us. We'd like to do that. And again, I think we're talking about brands who aren't pushing to the future maybe as hard as some others or maybe they are in one they want their trucks to be all electric but maybe the passenger cars eh, we're we're not sure either about what the future is going to hold so we're gonna we're gonna slow roll this stuff so we could do a hybrid and say we're hybrid in the meantime then yeah that, that'll that'll make people happy on on the business end here the 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 marketing officers and the 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 financial folks but it's not really indicative of any kind of major corporate strategy with the cars we're going to be selling so there's a couple things to consider here but i think overall carlos we have a situation where indycar and imsa would be very smart to say since you all don't know exactly what you're going to be doing two years from now or five or seven but seems like most of you are saying it ain't hybrid then we need to give you options and We'll have to figure out the rules afterwards. Might be counterintuitive for some folks who only know racing as kind of a spec thing. Must be this amount of cylinders, this displacement. You can only have one turbo or you can only have two. And For those who are just trying to think, same old, same old. Just got to print it all hardcore. Every, all the, the valve angles must be this. The engine's block, it must be at this V, no more than this V angle, no less than that V angle. That's the way things have been, and I would say that those things are going to have to go away if IndyCar and IMSA want to maintain significant manufacturer involvement uh, to provide engines, provide cars, provide funding. 
I just don't see how you paint a narrow box and then expect manufacturers to either stay committed or show up and commit. Final item I'll, I'll throw in here, and I don't know, maybe this is the, the closing item of the week, I'm not sure, would say that the flip side to this, which is a little bit tough, is on the team side. So if we have a situation where IndyCar says, hey, we're going to go away from engine leases. We're going to go away from, quote, official engine suppliers. We're going to go back to the old days of the IRL, not the whole IRL, but at least the, uh, well, heck, so I've got to do some qualifications here. Not the first season of the IRL, which used leased engines from Cosworth, by and large. Um, we're going to go back to the 1997 through, I don't know, what was it, 2003, two whatever, IRL era. That period before engine leases with major manufacturers became a thing again, where teams bought their own engines, bought their Oldsmobiles, their Infinities, and had whomever build them. And they owned them. They paid for the rebuilds. You could do, you know, as long as it met the rules, which weren't, they, they were tight, but they weren't crazy. Work on your engines whenever you want, you know, just it's yours. Do with it as you please. Unless we come to some sort of point quickly where hybridization type tools, fully electric tools, fall into readily consumable means i don't know how teams actually do anything more than just be really prone in this new era that's a concern so if indycar were to say hey we're going to go back to the old engine formula you buy it you know it's 80 grand or whatever have someone build it rebuilds 20 grand 30 grand whatever costs go down you don't have manufacturers paying for things. You don't have the, the Honda Indy Grand Prix. You don't have a lot of things. There, there are some serious negative repercussions from going without manufacturers. And I don't know if IndyCar really survives without it. But the main point I'm getting at here is unless we go to this old formula where teams can readily build their own motors or hire someone down the street to do it, and it's all lots of common knowledge, Everything's readily available. You can get out of a catalog or you could fabricate it yourself or, you know, you could strike up a relationship and someone makes you pistons only for you. And that doesn't exist right now when it comes to this wave of electrification. Not saying that there aren't companies who won't sell you uh, motor generator units and software and batteries and superconductors. And I am positive that teams could, if they needed to pick up the uh, proverbial phone book and call a bunch of folks and say, Hey, what do you got? You know, Hey, you make small little boutique type electric vehicles, whatever it is, who knows what, what market segment, but what do you make? What do you have? How do you do things? I'm sure teams could call around and probably cobble together some things. There are obviously some bigger vendors. You'd say, well, hey, 
who are all the people making stuff for the Formula E cars? Let's just call them and see if they could make it bigger and faster for us. Options. There are options. None of it's readily known or available. If Carlin Racing needed to put together a mostly electric power plant, could they? Again, if they had a lot of money, probably, but these are not exactly off-the-shelf solutions in the same way that a high-power, naturally aspirated V8 or turbocharged V6 or inline four-cylinder turbo could be sourced and installed within very few phone calls. Either the purchase of those items or the lease of those items could be done. And there'd be fabrication work, of course, to make it fit in the back of the car. And how do you plumb everything to the radiators and the this again? But these are things teams have done for decades, know how to do. Some maybe haven't, right? In the spec era, it's not as much of a thing. But any of the older guys, the guys that are a little bald or maybe a little salt in their beard, this would be doing what they'd done for years. So they'd know how to do it. Teams could adjust very easily. Hey, we're getting rid of the engine lease formula. Go Or, you know, the only Honda, only Chevy. You go find whoever you want. If you can buy it, you buy it. Put it in the back. As long as it fits, off you go. Confident every single IndyCar team could do that. If IndyCar said, by the way, for all the road races, maybe not the ovals right now, who knows, but we're going to go fully electric in the next couple years. You guys call whoever, get to work. I think you're going to have a lot of teams announcing their exit from the IndyCar series. Not because the task is too big. Not because there aren't really talented and smart people but because the ability to do so, the technology that readily fits racing applications, to my knowledge, is not super prevalent. Could you go and find giant 1,000-pound batteries? Sure. Could you find things that, again, are big and meant to move a four or 5,000-pound Tesla? Or run on down the line, a Chevy Bolt, a Toyota this, a Honda that. I'm, again, I'm sure you can find things that have road car applications. If we're talking IndyCar, not sports cars that weigh a lot more. If we're talking IndyCar, where weight reduction is important, aerodynamic profile is very important. You know, It's a specific sport. Could they go and find some of these things? Sure. Does it turn the back of the car looking into looking like a humpback whale? Because you've got to cram all this giant heavy stuff. Does it turn <laughs> with all the weight seemingly across the rear axle? Um, you know, again, these are all things that can be absolutely overcome and resolved. All I'm getting back to, though, Carlos, is I'm not confident that these things are going to be there by 2022 or three, or four? Will manufacturers do the thing that really would be amazing to hear if IndyCar gave them the opportunity? Hi, we don't want you to buy an off-the-shelf kinetic energy recovery system so you can call yourself hybrid. If you're investing a lot of money 
into taking your road cars more and more electric all the way to fully electric. Let's rekindle that old thing we used to do with IndyCar and have you use our series as a place where you develop new technology. Let's do something where you can use our series to actually get better and get to that future faster. The flip side is, no, we tell you to use a hybrid when you're no longer going to want to use them. And it's going to be spec and token and not very powerful, just so you can say you're a hybrid. Since we don't know what the future is in this regard, we don't know how fast we're going to get there. I can't see any way here to close on how we paint manufacturers into any kind of rigid internal combustion engine formula, specific size, specific cylinder count, specific anything, and also mandate the use of a kind of technology that by and large is, is old news. So maybe IndyCar needs to go bold. Maybe IndyCar needs to think of itself in a bigger and better way, have more belief in itself to say, you know, maybe we can be important again to the automotive industry. Maybe we aren't the ones dictating to them so heavily. Maybe we give them the freedom to come here and play. Remember the crazy old days when freaking helicopter turbines <laughs> were used in cars that almost won the 500? And guys out of nowhere would mount a giant wing above the cockpit like Smokey Eunuch did. And folks could do wacky things like take the engine from the front, put it in the back. What? Holy cow. Folks could take a turbocharger and put it on a racing engine. And it could make stupid amounts of power and go a zillion miles an hour and destroy everybody in the Indy 500. Or we could take the profile of a wing and shape two of them and put them beneath the car. And oh my, it, it's, it sticks to the ground like we've never seen. And we could go, crazy concept, from skinny treaded tires to wide non-treaded tires insane (laughs) you know what else we're gonna do because we're feeling we're feeling a little racy we're gonna put seat belts in the things what i know probably some of you whatever number of you are going dude what are you talking about Fair enough. That should be kind of a a running question. There was a time, if not the vast majority of the time IndyCar has existed, where creativity and freedom was the norm. And while not the majority of the time, certainly some very high and important times, probably some of the most successful times, where manufacturers were allowed to come in and... Maybe not play with total freedom, but play. Do individualistic things. It met their marketing needs. It gave fans differences to embrace. Hey, look at that. Gave fans reasons to care about the cars more than just pretty 
things going quickly with numbers on them in colors but actual whoa all right so part of this sport is actually appreciating the nuances that's a raised nose that's a lowered nose why what's the difference well the driver just explained it we asked the designer aha uh-huh. there's a strategy like baseball people use different bats different lengths different weights different all kinds of stuff why why doesn't everybody use the same bat why do some folks prefer one over the other one brand over the other what hmm, what's what's a difference same kind of mindset what why are you using this tool instead of a different tool maybe folks could care about indie cars again because they were doing things that actually fed back to the automotive industry that the automotive industry wanted to promote not just hey we're there and we're racing but actual hey guess what we're getting smarter we're learning things we're trying new things we're letting you know ahead of time we're going to blow up things are going to fail and break down you might hear the police outside i should stop talking they do not like these ideas it's one of the benefits of living across from a hospital uh lots of people coming into those hospital hospitals which is great uh, if they need one but it's not great uh, if you're having to get there in an ambulance um this is just something to me that maybe this is representing a time carlos where indycar needs to think about how it presents itself to the world how it values itself and what kind of options it gives its manufacturers if they just want to stick the same old same old i am very concerned that very early into this new formula if we still have both manufacturers that are currently in the series when this formula is supposed to kick in i'm very concerned they're not going to find a reason to be around much longer than the first year or two and if they are concerned about it now which i know they are i'm not sure they're actually gonna be down with going forward with it so of the many things on the plate of Roger Penske and Jay Fry and Mark Miles and a number of others, this might be the sleeping giant. This might be the sleeping giant that they have to acknowledge. What do we do with our future plans since the automotive industry has changed faster than we expected? And it doesn't look like they're going to want the direction we said that we're going. So thanks for that closing question, Carlos. Also kind of turned it into the the longer closing conversation. Uh, I see here that there's probably maybe about 10 questions I didn't get to. Gary Chin, Snowy Flaky Leafs, Brandon Clark. Uh, Let's see, Joey the Priuses again, Bryson Frank. Hey, Bryson, right turn lover, my friend. Uh, Send those in. Send those in for next week's show. I'm hoping we have fewer questions next week and I can get to them more readily, but I know if I take the remaining ones, this is going to be a three-hour show and I can't do that right now. So I hope you've enjoyed this. Um, If you get a chance and you're still with me at the end of the show here, uh, do me a solid and thank our friends at Cooper Tires and also the Justice Brothers, maybe even our pals at TorontoMotorsports.com and Bell Racing Helmets for their patronage thank you and great news that cooper tires will be back for year three and uh i'm going to try and make some time here in the next couple of days to do some extreme podcast production 
I've actually created a folder titled, and this is just stupid, but you know, that's okay. It's called Work On Now, and it's all caps. <laughs> and it's uh, 13 podcasts that I've dropped into that folder. And, you know, one of them is like Pato Awards on board IndyCar sounds from the pre-race test at Sonoma in 2018 with his debut with uh, Harding Racing. So, yeah, some of these go back a little bit. But uh, anyways, I'm going to try and get some of these done and maybe a few others so that you've got some enjoyable bits over the holidays when I'm going to be trying to spend less time in the office and just more time with Mrs. Pruitt. All right. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is Marshall Pruitt Podcast. Brought to you by all the fine companies I just mentioned in our week in IndyCar listener Q&A. And I look forward to speaking to you next week.